Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. All of existence doesn't add anything to Hashem. Where does existence come from? Existence comes from Hashem, comes from God. Existence is nothing other than the divine words and letters, God's speech. It all comes from directly from Hashem. So the words and letters which God creates the world doesn't add anything, doesn't mean anything. Just like within the person, do the words and letters add anything to the source of the words and letters, to the raw emotion? Once you put it into words, does it add to the love? The words and letters, does it add to the raw understanding, the raw comprehension? It doesn't add anything. So in comparison to the source, if it doesn't exist, it's like that light, you're adding that light, to, okay, I have the sun, now I also have this little candle, this light, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't add a thing. So the words and letters, creation doesn't add anything. There's nothing that we have that adds something to God. Oh, well, there's God, and now we also exist. We have some content, we have some meaning, we have some, some value, we add, we add some value to the, to the equation. We add nothing. We have nothing, we add nothing, we are nothing. What does, what does it mean? It means nothing. To us, it means everything. Why? Because we don't sense the sun. We don't sense the source. We don't even feel like the light of the sun is outside the sun. The light of the sun is outside the sun, senses its source, feels connected. We don't even feel connected. We feel egotistical. We're completely blinded. We're wearing blinders. We don't even realize that we're like, completely dependent on our source and we can't exist a second without our source and we're nothing without our source we don't sense that at all we sense we're completely separate and independent and the world is fragmented and the world appears to us dead not dynamic and vibrant as it is as it truly is the world is vibrating with energy divine energy we don't sense energy we don't sense divine energy we just see a stone we see a, a, a fragmented world external world so we are blinded we don't see so to us, our existence has value, has meaning. But in reality, from God's point of view, the truth is, from the inside out, we, we don't add anything. There's Hashem and there's us. As if we bring something to the table, as if we add something. Well, now you have us, you have our qualities that we bring to the table. Everything we have. Everything, our being, our existence, our qualities, our characteristics, everything that we have is nothing other than the divine speech, divine energy. Just like the light of the sun is nothing other than the sun, it's completely dependent. And, we, and within the sun, it doesn't exist, it doesn't add anything. The light of the sun is like that candle you're adding to the sunlight. What does it add? It means nothing, it has no value, it has no meaning. So it's as if we don't exist. And we ourselves, our true being is at the source. Our true being is really, we're in a state of non-being and non-existence. That's our true nature, our true essence. Therefore, you can truly say there's no other reality but God. Nothing exists but God. We're not even like the body to God's soul. We're not even like a body. All there is is God. There is no body. There is nothing but God. There's nothing. Hashem is one, unique, exclusive. He is alone before He created the world, and He's alone after He created the world. We don't add anything to the picture. We don't add a single thing. Matter of fact, within the person, you, you, you don't even feel that you have letters, the word. You can't even find it. It's so meaningless, you can't even find it. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't add anything. You don't even feel that you have the words and letters. So within God, we have no value. It's as if we don't exist. So God is alone. He was alone, and he is alone now. With this whole tumult of creation, this whole bureaucracy of existence, and the heavens, and angels, and higher levels of consciousness, and spiritual beings, heaven and earth, Hashem, it's all absolutely nothing. As if we don't exist. God is alone, remains alone. Always was alone, always will be alone, and then is alone now. Nothing changes you. For creation, after creation. So he's going to say now, when a person really will really contemplate on this concept very deeply. 
In the Alter Rebbe's words, all created beings are nullified before God, just as the letters of speech and thought are nullified within their source and root, i.e., the soul, substance, and essence, meaning its ten faculties, Chochma, Bina, Da'at, and the Midot, in which there are no letters as yet prior to their being clothed in the garment of thought, as has been explained at length in chapters 20 and 21. See there. Elsewhere, this idea is further illustrated by an analogy from a physical phenomena. The nullification of the sun's radiance and light within its source, the celestial orb of the sun. For surely its radiance and light glow and spread forth there too, more strongly in fact than they spread forth and glow in the space of the universe. Being close to its source, the light is more intense. But there, within the sun, its very existence is nullified within that of its source. It is as though the light were absolutely non-existent. All that is seen within the sun is the sun itself, not the light, which is merely a product, an offshoot of the sun. This will be better understood in terms of the saying, of what good is a candle in the daylight? Naturally, the candle is no less luminous by day than by night. But because its light is overwhelmed by the far greater brightness of daylight, it no longer fulfills its function of illumination. At this point, it ceases to exist as a luminary. The same is true of the sun's rays as they are within the sun. Exactly so, figuratively speaking, is the very existence of the world and everything in it nullified in relation to its source, which is the light of Ein Sof, as is explained there at length. This, then, is the true meaning of God's unity, that He alone exists and there is nothing beside Him. Now, when one contemplates deeply and at length on this matter of God's true unity, his heart will rejoice with this faith. His soul will be gladdened by it to the point of rejoicing and singing with all his heart, soul, and might. It seems a contradiction. Here he says, his heart will rejoice with his faith. As if this is a matter of faith. When we just explained it, seemingly quite rationally, it makes sense to us. Since God is creating us each and every moment, and we are completely dependent on God. So we are like the light of the sun, just like the light of the sun is completely dependent on the sun. And therefore, if there's a light outside the sun, there's probably a light inside the sun, but it's completely nullified as if it doesn't exist. I mean, he's bringing examples, and also from human speech. We are nothing other than the divine energy, which is the human, which is divine speech. It's constantly within us and creating us and sustaining us and animating us. And the speech of God is within the source. Within God, it's as if it doesn't exist. It's in a state of non-being. All of this seems to be logical arguments. What do you mean it's a matter of faith? Your soul will rejoice with his faith. Why is he referred to it as faith? So there's a few explanations. One explanation is that the whole thing is premised in faith. You believe that God is creating the world each and every moment with his divine speech, which is God's channeling his energy concentrating his energy and creating us and constituting us. It's the very letters and words and shape, our name, our Hebrew name, that actually constitutes who we are, our personality, our character, our characteristic traits. But that's a matter of faith, that God is creating the world each and every word, and God creates the world with his Hebrew letters and with his, the Hebrew name. It's channeling and concentrating the energy, so that's a matter of faith. The whole thing is premised in faith. So once you have that faith, then you can understand rationally and logically if that's the case, then you take it to its logical conclusion. Then we don't. Then it's as if we don't exist, and nothing changes. We don't add any value. We don't add anything to the table. That's one explanation. But the truth is that even though we understand this intellectually, it's inherent. Every Jew has this faith. Even a Jew who never studied Hasidut, a Jew who never, never had the opportunity. It's instinctive. For a Jew, this faith comes instinctively. We just know it. We just sense it. That there's no other reality but God. Which explains why a Jew is always saying, thank God. You ask a Jew, how are you doing? And how's your health? Thank God. How's business? Thank God. No good. Everything is thank God. What does God have to do with business? What does God have to do with health? What does God have to do <laughs> with my marriage? What does God have to do with regular life, day-to-day -day life? 
I'm not asking you how is your Torah study coming along, how is your prayer, how is your meditation. I'm asking you how is your daily life. And yet, when a Jew writes a letter, he starts out, Baruch Hashem, Vesayat Adishmai, with the help of God. Everything is God. Beginning, middle, and end. Because instinctively, a Jew senses that there's no other reality but God. You talk about business. What's business? It's all about God. There is nothing else. You talk about eating. You make a blessing. It's all about God. What else? There's nothing else. What does God have to do with a cup of water? It's a Wednesday afternoon. I'm thirsty. It's the most natural, urgent instinct in the world. And yet, you immediately, a Jew connects it with God. Everything that we do is permeated with a sense of God. And this is not just the great rabbi, mystic, and scholar. The simplest Jew knows this instinctively. Every single Jew, innately, inherently, inherits this faith. We are the believers, the children of believers. It comes natural to us. We just know it. You can't explain it. It's inexplicable. We just know it. You just know it. In your guts, in your kishkis, it's, 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 a, it's not just an abstract concept. It's, it's, re, it's a living, breathing reality because we know Hashem. With every fiber of our being and every bone in our body. So really, it's a matter of faith. These intellectual explanations are just helping us articulate the undefined, helping us articulate this faith, bring it out of the closet, so to speak. Bring it into our conscious level so we can, this faith could become a vibrant part of our daily lives. And the truth is, after all the explanations are said and done, it still remains a matter of faith. Understand the unity of God. And on one hand, the Torah says we exist. In the beginning, Bereshis, the very opening line of the Torah, Bereshis, Baralakim. How do we know the world exists? Maybe the world is just one big illusion. Maybe it's like a movie set and we're just seeing characters and it appears real. Maybe it's just a cartoon. Maybe it's just a, an illusion. How do we know that we truly exist? Because the Torah says, Bereshis, Baralakim, the beginning, God created heaven and earth. That's the only way we know that this is real. It was not just a figment of our imagination. But how do you reconcile that? If we are real, and we have to say we're real, otherwise what's the purpose of Torah and mitzvah? There's a law in the laws of Shabbat that if someone desecrates Shabbat, but he does it through magic, and he's not, it's just an illusion. He creates an illusion. Some magicians have the power to create an illusion. So you don't get the punishment for desecrating Shabbat because you haven't done an action. It's just an illusion. So if the whole creation is one big illusion, how could there be punishments in the Torah? How could we reward? So obviously, it's real. So the Torah itself is telling us that we're for real. How do you reconcile that? On one hand, we exist. Our existence is real. The Torah itself says that we're real. And yet on the other hand, God is alone, as if, as if we don't exist. Nothing changed. God was alone and He remains alone. How could you reconcile the two? It seems like a paradox. So as much as you understand, it's still, it's counterintuitive. What do you mean, I don't exist? And yet at the same time, I do exist. And my service of God means something. What's the whole point of serving God if I don't exist? What am I accomplishing? I'm taking a piece of, the, of this world. I'm taking something that's ordinary, that's mundane, that's secular. And I'm transforming it into something sacred, into something holy by doing a mitzvah with it. If there's no other reality but God, what am I doing? What am I accomplishing? What's the point? What's the purpose? Anyway, God is every, God. There is nothing but God. So as much as we understand, it still remains a mystery. Ultimately, it's something that the mind, you can't wrap your mind around it. It, it remains something of a matter of faith. So, so it's just a road or a path to help us appreciate, to help us understand how reality is nothing but God. But at the same time, ultimately this concept is something that completely blows you away. It's counterintuitive. It's really a matter of faith. So that's why he says that when you, when you will contemplate this concept very deeply with your mind, it will evoke a passion within your heart. It will evoke a joy, tremendous joy. And you will, to the point that you will sing with all your heart. Your heart will sing with joy with this faith. You will rejoice with this faith. When it will dawn on you and you will realize and truly realize with a penetrating understanding and a deep contemplation 
until it evokes a response inside of you, until it stirs up your soul, it stirs up your heart. And you make a personal connection with this idea. And it comes alive for you on a personal level, your heart will burst out singing. But this faith, the idea that there's no other reality but God. So why are you so excited to continue for this faith? For this faith is tremendous. When it fills one's mind, it actually constitutes an experience of the closeness of God. Again, this also is counterintuitive. You would think that the more you understand how there's not the reality but God, then the gap, the distance in us and God has just become unbridgeable. It's like a Grand Canyon, an infinite gap. There's no connection between us and God. So if when you talk about, as we learned last week, earlier, that God fills all the world, like the soul fills the body, and then you have the all-encompassing energy that God creates and sustains the world with His all-encompassing energy that totally eludes our consciousness, eludes our grasp, and is completely beyond our, our, our frame of reference, our, our comprehension, that's totally removed and remote from us. We can't even perceive it. But when you talk about the essence of God, and in relation to the essence of God, we don't even exist. Our existence doesn't mean anything. It has no value. It has, it's like completely meaningless. It doesn't add anything. And all there is is God. You would think then the distance in us and God is, is beyond. Unbridgeable. And yet, it's just the opposite. It's the essence of God that's the closest to us. Because when you understand the essence of God, there is no other reality but God. Then you realize that God is right here, with me, right in front of me, right in front of my eyes, right under my nose, is right here with me, here and now, present, actual. What others would call radical imminence. That means the, the immediacy of God, the reality of God. God is not some abstraction, some otherworldly, remote, removed, on the contrary. This hits home, it, then it hits home how immediate, how actual, how palpable the reality of God is. God is right in front of me, the very essence of God. Then there are no, there are no, there, there is no canyon, there is no chasm between us and God because God is here. There's no, there's no other reality but God. That means God is within me. God is right here, in front of me, immediate. It's real, as real as it can. So this hits home in the most powerful way. The reality of God hits home in the most powerful way. It becomes actual and real to us. Not some abstraction. It's counterintuitive. You would think that the more you understand that we're so distant from God and we're so nothing and we're so insignificant, on the contrary, the more you understand that, the more you realize Hashem is right here and now. Because there is no hiding. The whole idea that God is hiding could only affect God's projection, God's infinite light. But when it comes to the essence of God, there is no hiding. There's no symptom. And that's why even children, even ignorant people, simple people, unsophisticated, know God with every fiber of their being and every bone in their body. And that's why everyone says Baruch Hashem. The simple Jew will say Baruch Hashem. Thank God. Not because he studied philosophy. He studied Maimonides and he studied philosophy. Not because he studied the Ari and he studied mysticism. He doesn't know about philosophy. He doesn't know about mysticism. A simple, unlettered, unsophisticated person. Uneducated person. And yet he knows with his kishkis, with every fiber, every, every bone in his body, he knows the reality of God. So much so that it's so obvious to him. It's so self-evident. My health, thank God. My business, thank God. How are things at home? Thank God. Everything in my life is thank God. Could you explain it? I can't explain it, but, but I know that God is everything. There is nothing but God. There is no other reality but God. There is nothing else. All there is is God. If there is anything, all there is is God. And the truth is, it's not just the Jewish people. The truth is the reality of God is something, the essence of God. There is no hiding. There is no concealing. There is no screening, the essence of God is so obvious and self-evident and so palpable 
that not only Jews, but even non-Jews, every human being knows God with every fiber of their being and every bone in their body. And the proof is, if you think about it, the philosophers prided themselves that they call themselves the enlightened ones. Why are they the enlightened ones? What makes a person enlightened? Because when a person overcomes the fear of death, when the philosopher, through his brilliance and through his intellect, came to the realization, comes to the realization that death is part of life. Without death, there's no life. Just like without up, there's no down. Without right, there's no left. You can't have one without the other. Without pain, there's no joy. Without, if there's no shadow, there's no light. So one brings the other. They're both connected. So they have risen above the fear of death that motivates the masses. And they're above it. They realize that death is part of life. There's nothing to be afraid of. And they can accept death with equanimity. This is the definition of an enlightened person. Comes along the Torah and says, a person who doesn't mourn on a loved one that dies, it's not because he's enlightened. He's in darkness. This is a monster, a cruel, inhumane person. Because the masses that these who suffer from superiority complexes make fun of, the masses are more in touch and more in tune with reality than these great philosophers. Why is it that six billion people instinctively mourn death? It's the greatest tragedy. It should be the most logical thing in the world. Everyone we know dies. We don't know a single person who hasn't died. The exceptions of Elijah the prophet or the few exceptions, we don't know anyone who hasn't died. So logically, death should be like, you go to sleep, you live the life, you say goodbye, good night, and go to sleep. Why is death such a, a tragedy? Logically, you can't have right without left. You can't have up without down. So you can't have death without, you can't have life without death. Isn't that the position of the enlightened philosopher and the enlightened mystic who realizes that there is no right and wrong and all the dualities are really just part of the same? Inseparable. And yet, instinctively, six billion people cut across all cultures, all educational systems, in their gut, just know that there's something wrong with that. And the reason is because God is not an abstraction. God is a reality. God is, period. There is nothing else. When we say God is one, not only there's one God and not two gods, but God is unified within himself. What we're saying is there is no other reality. God is one. There's only one existence. God's, God is an absolute being. And therefore, since there's nothing but God, God's being is absolute. Therefore, he doesn't need anything else to define him. We who are not absolute beings, we need something, something to contrast us. We need something to define us. We need the opposite to define us. So right needs left to define it. Good needs evil to define it. Wisdom needs foolishness to define it. Light needs shadow. Joy needs pain. Life needs death. But that's only from our relative existence, our relative point of view. But from God's absolute point of view, and ultimately, the only point of view. Just like God's being is absolute, so goodness that comes from God is also absolute. There can be absolute good without any evil. There can be absolute life without death. There can be absolute light without any shadows. There can be absolute joy. As the Prophet says, Vesim Oilam Mashiach will come, there'll be an eternal joy. There won't be any, no longer any shadow. There won't be no longer any evil. That's the revolution of the Jewish belief of Mashiach. The Jewish belief of Mashiach is so counterintuitive, it's so revolutionary, it's so beyond our whole frame of reference. And yet this is the belief, this is the core, the essential principle of Judaism that a Jew believes. 
and we know now Kishkas, we know that there's a world which is absolutely good, with this absolutely life. There won't be any death anymore. A Hashem will swallow up death forever. The tragedy of death will come to an end. The tragedy of evil, of lies will come to an end. Darkness will come to an end. Shadows will come to an end. Pain will come to an end. There'll be absolute joy, absolute goodness, and absolute life. And it's not just Jews who know this, but it's universal. Six billion people know this truth, even though you can't explain it. It's inexplicable. It makes no sense. The philosophers are completely right, logically and philosophically and mystically. They seem to be 100% correct. But we know a deeper truth that they don't know that eludes all these and darkened. Darkened ones. The truth is that the masses are truly the enlightenment. They know, in their kishkas, they know the reality of God. I mean, you know the reality of God, you just know that something is wrong. When you see death, it, it, it's, it's gut-wrenching. It's unnatural. Everyone we know dies, but it, 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 you can never make peace with it. If something is wrong with this picture. It makes no sense. Death makes no sense. When you're confronted with evil, your blood boils. It makes no sense. When you're confronted with lies and deception and evil, you can't accept pain. You have to fight pain or suffering. Because when it comes to the essence, the reality of God, there is no screening, there is no hiding, there's no... God's essence is completely manifest before our very eyes. There's no hiding, there's no blockage. It's not even possible to hide or to block. The whole symptom only affects God's projection, His infinite light, but not His essence. So when you think, when you, it dawns upon and it, you understand it with a very penetrating understanding, and then you deepen, you reflect on it very deeply, until something, it evokes a response inside, something stirs inside of you, you realize the reality of God is right in front of you. It's here and now, immediate, actual, real, as real. The only, the only thing that's real, as real as anything. And then you jump, you start singing. Imagine the excitement when you realize that the essence of God is right in front of you. We can't see it's like the, the person who needs glasses, you know, he takes off his glasses, he can't see, so something's right in front of you. It's right there, there's no hiding. I can't see, I'm wearing a blinder. But it's right there, there's no hiding. It's right, it's right in front of me, it's right in front of my nose. The reality of God is actual, it's here, it's immediate, it's now. Radical imminence, God is right here. His very essence is right here, with me, in front of me, inside of me, all around me, here. Imagine the joy when that hits home, when that thought really, really hits home. You jump with joy. God is right here. No matter what condition we're in, we're righteous or not righteous, if we're good or not good, God is right here. With me, right in front of me. This, in fact, is the whole purpose of man and the purpose for which he and all the worlds, both upper and lower, were created, that God should have such a dwelling place here below as will be explained further at length, how this earthly abode for God is the purpose of all creation. Man's faith in the unity of God fulfills this goal. For when God's unity is revealed in the mind and heart of men, this world becomes an abode for God, He is revealed there just as one reveals himself completely in his own home. The Kotzke Rebbe once asked his Hasidim, he says, where is is God? Where is Hashem? So they said, Hashem is everywhere. He said, no, Hashem is wherever you let him in. When you let Hashem into your heart, when you let him into your mind, when you let him into your consciousness, when you're aware of him, when you're aware of His presence, when you feel Him, that's where Hashem is. So the whole purpose of creation, the whole purpose of all the heavens and angelic beings, and the whole purpose of the divine spherot, supernal spherot, emanation, the world of emanation, and the whole purpose of everything that exists 
in the higher realms, in the lower levels, higher levels of consciousness, sublime, pure, spiritual, divine, everything, the purpose of everything that exists is, as we'll explain later, is that God wanted to feel at home in this, in this world. God wanted a dwelling place in this world. And it's only when we let Him into our lives and we willingly choose to allow Hashem to enter into our lives, it's only then that God's essence becomes manifest. So again, this is completely counterintuitive. This is completely revolutionary. This is what distinguishes Judaism from all other religions, which place the emphasis on the higher, the sublime, love and meditation, philosophy and the spiritual. And Judaism emphasizes the material, the physical, the action, the deed. It's this world that is the holiest of all the worlds. What the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain God. And where is God found? Where is God's abode? Where did God give us the Torah? Who did God marry? Where did He create the temple? Where does He feel at home? He doesn't feel at home in the heavens and the heavens of heaven. Where does He feel at home? In this world, in this physical existence, in the lowest of all the worlds. This world is the most sacred. This world is the holiest. This world is the Garden of Eden. The ultimate reward will be the resurrection when the souls were in heaven for thousands of years growing in leaps and bounds on a daily basis. They can't wait to come back into the body in this world. This world is the holiest of all the worlds. Completely counterintuitive. How can this world be the holiest of all the worlds? With the greatest potential. Which is also why this world is the most corrupt and the most decadent. <laughs> because the greater the potential good, the greater the potential for the opposite. This is the most dynamic of all worlds. Everything that we do in this world affects all of the worlds, including the divine realms. Everything. As the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe of Shalom Dober, the Rebbe Rashab, once asked, he said, why? Why does God get so excited? It says in the Torah, out of the 613 mitzvot, there are 51 mitzvot that deal with idolatry, that one should not worship idols. More than any other theme, 51 mitzvot that deal with one single theme, thou shall not worship idols. Second of the Ten Commandments, thou shall not worship idols. God gets very jealous. The answer is, why should God care? Why should God get so excited if one worships idols? Just imagine, Albert Einstein is sitting on a park bench here in Central Park. And he's sitting next to two six-year-old kids. And he overhears the conversation. One kid is telling the other, you know, I, I heard in my home that Albert Einstein is the greatest genius alive today. Perhaps of many generations. And his friend, the other six-year-old, responds to his friend. He says, you know, I read his theories. Frankly, <coughs> I'm not too impressed. I don't know what the whole, the whole commotion is all about. I'm not too impressed. <laughs> what do you think would be Einstein's response? You think it really bothers him what this little six-year-old Schmendrick thinks about him? <laughs> He's the greatest genius, or not the genius. This six-year-old is a maven of geniuses. He'll smile to himself. It's like a joke. It's amusing. Well, multiply that infinite times. The distance in Einstein, the six-year-old kid, is nothing in comparison. There's an infinite difference in us and God. The greatest genius in God. So imagine God's response if a human being decides if some atheistic professor scratches his head and decides that there is no God. Very, very amusing. I mean, really. That really is going to change things because he thinks that God doesn't think this does exist. As if that means anything, it matters, it changes. I mean, it, it's, the whole thing is, is it's amusing at best. Think of Einstein and the child. It's, it's completely amusing. <laughs> and yet, why, so why does God get so excited? God becomes jealous. The Jew worships idols. You deny my existence. God gets all excited. What's the explanation? So Jew likes to answer a question with a question. 
And one Jew asked the other, why is it the Jews always answer a question with a question? He answered, why not? <laughs> so the question is, why were the Ten Commandments given in the singular? I am God, your God, who took you out of Egypt. God is addressing the Jewish people, the community. So God is giving the Ten Commandments in the singular. Because every individual Jew matters. If every single Jew in the world feels Jewish and identifies as a Jew and feels connected, and feels part of Jewish history and part of Jewish destiny. But there's one Jew in the world who's left out, who doesn't feel connected, consciously connected, then it's as if no one received the Torah. If one Jew is missing, Rabbi Shimon Bayechai, the author of the Zohar, the Bible of Jewish mysticism, wrote, if one Jew would be missing at Mount Sinai, Moses cannot receive it. So why is it so essential that every Jew is pressed in Baal? answers because that's the idea when you say God is one if God is an absolute being and there's no other reality but God then God's reality can't be 99.9% if something is 99.9% real it's 100% not real if something is 1% real if it's absolutely real then it's 100% real so the moment you say that God is limited to certain enclaves of religiosity, Jerusalem, Crown Heights, Muncie, Borough Park, Williamsburg, if God is relegated to the heaven and the heaven of heavens and to holy, sublime places, but outside of those enclaves, God doesn't exist. Or if there's one human being who in his heart and mind, God doesn't exist, that's a direct contradiction to the essence of God. Because if God is real, then God has to be 100% real. That means that 14 million Jews, every last Jew has to feel connected. Six billion people, every last human being has to be a righteous Gentile, has to feel connected to the divine. Has to allow God to enter into the hearts and the mind. And if not, God's reality is not real. And that's why the Torah says, in Exodus, the end of the parsha, the Torah portion of B'Shalach, that God does battle with Amalek because until Mashiach comes, God's name is incomplete. We're not allowed to pronounce God's name. And His throne is incomplete. And that's why Mashiach is such an essential part of Judaism. Why is that so essential? Why can't I just serve God and worship God? And if there are people who don't believe in God, why does that take away from my connection and my awareness and my service of God? Because the answer is, it's only when every human being will accept God, willingly accept God as their sovereign, and allow God to enter into their consciousness, into their hearts and their minds. When every Jew will be proud of their Jewishness and feel connected. And when every human being will feel that he's created in the image of God and he's a descendant of Noah and live up to that role model and become a Ben Noah a Noahide righteous Gentile following the Torah Noahide laws the seven Noahide laws it's only at that moment that God will become that God's essence that God is real because if God is real then his reality has to be able to permeate even a world like ours. A world where God doesn't impose himself on us. In heaven, they have no choice. God is revealed. God is manifest. God projects himself. So of course they're nullified to God. It's almost like God imposes himself on, on the angels. But God created a world, our world, where he's hidden and he's concealed. And it's a very earthy world. And yet... Even in this world, God is confident that we, on our own, we will come to the realization and willingly and deliberately accept upon ourselves. Not because we have no choice. We have a choice. He created the world with his freedom of choice. And we, on our own, will have the wisdom and come to the realization and the awareness 
of the truth of the emiss, that there's no other reality but God, and will willingly, deliberately and willingly choose to enter into this relationship and to connect with God. And there will be a moment, the Torah promises, and it's not just a detail. Maimonides says this is the, one of the 13 principles, and the Chafetz Chaim says this is the principle of all principles. Because a Jew who doesn't believe, who doesn't anticipate, who doesn't yearn for this moment, misses the entire point of the entire Torah. Because if you believe in the truth of God and you believe in the reality of God, then you must believe that there will be a moment, there will be a time when every last Jew alive in this world and every last human being that's alive, except Amalek, which is incorrigible and, and will be wiped out because Amalek is, is irredeemable. Amalek is like toxic waste. The absolute evils in this world, the Hitlers of the world, they are irredeemable. The hardcore anti-Semites of the world, they're irredeemable. That's a Amalek. Amalek is like a tumor, a cancer. The only cure is chemotherapy, obliterate the tumor. But the 70 nations of the world, 6 billion people, every last one of them, every race, every color, every nationality, every last one of them, from one end of the world to the other, will come to recognize and accept the sovereignty of God. Willingly and deliberately. That's the world of Mashiach. And it's only then that God's name will be whole, will be allowed to pronounce God's name, God's will be revealed. So therefore, we affect God because if we don't open our hearts and we don't open our minds and we don't allow God into our consciousness, then in a certain sense, God is not real. Because what you're saying then is that God is real in 99.9% of the universe. But in my mind, in my heart, God is not a reality. That's a direct contradiction to the truth and the essence of God. So it's only in our world that God's essence is revealed. A world where God is hidden and there's freedom of choice. And even in this world, God's reality could permeate our reality. We can come to the realization, we can open our hearts and open our minds and open our awareness and make that connection. We affirm the reality of God. More so than the heavens and the heavens of heavens, the angels with all their sublime, sublime spiritual elevation, inspiration, have nothing on a human being have nothing on us. Because it's only in this setting, in this world, that we come and we touch the essence of God. It's only in this world that we reveal and make manifest the essence of God. God says, I feel at home in this world. That's why God married us. He gave us the Torah. He didn't give the Torah to angels. He gave the heavens came down to earth. God told us to build a temple. He only feels at home in this world. The heaven, as King Solomon cried out in, in astonishment when he built the first temple in Jerusalem, he says, the heavens and the heaven of heavens are not contained. God doesn't feel at home in heavens and the heavens of heavens. Where is God's essence felt? Where does he feel at home? Where is his essence manifest? Ironically and paradoxically in this physical world. Our world, a world of geography, of time and space, material beings, bodies, souls and bodies, this is where God feels at home. When you open your heart and you open your mind and you become aware of the reality of God and it permeates your whole being until your heart sings with joy. And when you realize that God is palpable and God is actual and God is immediate and God is real right in here and now, right in front of me. And you realize that you have fulfilled the ultimate purpose of creation. You have revealed the essence of God. You have touched you have connected with the very essence of God. In the here and now, in this physical plane of existence, in this physical world. That's why the soul journeyed into the body. That's why the soul left the heavens, its heavenly perch, its heavenly peak, and it came down into the abyss. And it was all worthwhile. It was all worthwhile, that traumatic experience of the soul coming down to the body, just to be able to fulfill the purpose of creation, to reveal the essence of God, to make God feel at home in this world. And how do you fulfill that? By opening your heart and opening your mind and becoming aware of the truth of God, the reality of God. There is no other reality but God, God's absolute essence, God's absolute reality.
gives you tremendous joy. And you realize, you realize what you're dealing with. That in this world, we're dealing with the essence of God. We're making a dwelling place for God. We're making God feel at home. This is the ultimate purpose of all of creation, of the heavens, of everything that exists. And you are fulfilling it by opening your heart to this truth, and opening your heart to this reality. You, you, you jump from joy. There's no room for feeling sad or feeling down or feeling... You realize what you have. You realize the riches, the riches that we have. Something that the angels would only, can't even imagine. Give everything they have to change places with us. They can't. And we have this opportunity. Here and now, in this physical, earthy plane, in this physical world, we have the opportunity to touch the essence of God. In heaven, they don't even know what God looks like. That's only God's projection. But the essence of God is right here and now, before us. We open our hearts and minds. How great is the joy of a common and lowly person when he is brought close to a king of flesh and blood who furthermore lodges and greater still dwells together with him, not in the king's palace, but in his, the commoner's home. We're not talking about a common a common subject who moves into the palace. He's allowed into the palace. We're talking about the king moving into your home, to your apartment, to your studio apartment. <laughs> Imagine the king moving into your Manhattan studio apartment with you. Imagine the joy, the tremendous joy. The king of kings is, is, is with you. Is Okay. How much more, infinitely more, ought one to rejoice in the nearness of the King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed be He, and in His dwelling together with man in this physical world, man's home. So Hashem is with us, totally, entirely, completely, in the here and now, as we are. Sophisticated, unsophisticated, as great, as low, as small, big, makes no difference. As we are, Hashem is totally with us and totally present with us, is living with us, is moving in with us. Imagine the joy. And on the contrary, the more a person feels how low he is, how unspiritual we are, that only increases the joy. Imagine, despite who I am, and despite all my problems and all my lacking. Despite all of that, Hashem is here with me entirely, completely. That, that holding back, that any reservation, Hashem is completely with me. So it is written, For who is the man who dares to approach me, says God? So even though Jeremiah writes, Who can approach God? God is so infinite. God is so beyond us. How can we even approach God? And yet... Despite that distance, despite that God is so remote and so beyond us, despite that, Hashem is actually with us, entirely with us, present, here and now, completely, entirely, totally, totally with us. So imagine the joy. What did I do to merit this? Imagine the most important person you can imagine that your respect chooses to stay over in your house tonight. <laughs> Out of, he had palaces to choose from, he had, and yet, could have stayed at the Waldorf. Instead, chose, chose you to stay with you. Imagine the, imagine the joy, the indescribable joy. This is, this is something you would, you would, uh, you would remember forever. Something will stay with you forever. That everyone in the world, everyone you chose me to be with, imagine the honor. Imagine the joy, the, the, the indescribable joy. Yet in one's awareness of God's unity and through self-nullification before him, 
one does come near to God. Furthermore, God thereby dwells with him and within him. For this ability to experience and to be absorbed in God's unity, it was instituted by the sages that one should render praise and thanks to God's name each morning, saying, How fortunate are we! How good is our portion! How pleasant our lot! And how beautiful our heritage! They say Rabbi Levitzel Gabraditcher, the great Hasidic master, once woke up in the morning and he felt that he was spiritually naked. He felt he had no qualities and he felt miserable with himself until he made the blessing. Thank God. You made me who I am. You made me a Jew. And, and he said, and you realize how fortunate is our lot, how fortunate is our portion, how beautiful is our heritage. When you realize that I, I may not have any qualities. I have nothing to boast of. I have no redeeming qualities, no redeeming factors. But I am a Jew. And I inherited this beautiful faith. What makes us Jewish? We have a Jewish soul. We have this faith comes instinctively to us. The faith that there's no other reality but God. It's something that we know with our kishkes. And it's a Jew's mission to reveal this truth. Not only for ourselves, but to really to open the eyes of everyone in the world. And to help every human being realize that instinctively in their guts, they all know God. God is not an abstraction. God is not some crystal energy, some heavenly, otherworldly energy. God is. God is reality. And it's a reality that permeates us entirely. And we know with every fiber of our being and every bone in our body, as in truth, every human being does know it. Which is why instinctively we respond so naturally to death as a tragedy. We respond to pain and to evil only because we know God with every fiber of our being, without even realizing it. So it's the mission of the Jew to open the eyes of the world and to help every human being realize who they are and help everyone realize that God is a reality. God is not some otherworldly abstraction, a mental construct. We're not, God is not created in the image of man, but as the Torah says, man is created in the image of God. God is, God is, period, reality. There's no separation of church and state. God is not church and God is not state. God is everything, church, state. God is reality, period. God is not some religion, something that's compartmentalized. And of course, that was never the intent of the founding fathers, to expel God from the public square and to make a wall, a separation, an artificial separation between God and state. That's a completely fallacious misinterpretation of what the Founding Fathers had in mind. The Founding Fathers had in mind is to separate, not to make a church-dominated religion, as in England, the Church of England, but that everyone should be free to worship on their own. Abraham Lincoln used to walk around with a tattered Bible. People prayed in the schools up until 50 years ago. He had prayers in the schools. People said grace after the meal. People prayed before they went to bed. God is a reality. God is not church, state. God is. It's written in the dollar bill, and God we trust. We're one nation under God. And to distort that truth, Jews have to be in the forefront of those who share with this great country our good fortune. The United States of America has treated the Jewish people beautifully despite our very tragic history of persecution. The United States opened its arms to the Jewish people and allowed us to worship in freedom, to pursue our Torah, to pursue our Judaism, to pursue our way of life. And as a sign of gratefulness, the only, the best way to respond is to share with 300 million Americans, to share with them the secret of our success, and the secret of our success as a people. The reason why we survived for 3,800 years is we've never left the front pages of history while the high and mighty, where the Romans today, where the Greeks, have long gone and disappeared to the footnotes of history is because to us God is not an abstraction. God is reality, period. There's no compartmentalization. There's no church and there's no state. God is reality. And therefore, therefore, while it's very wise of our founding fathers to make a separation that there should not be a, a state dominated church 
but everyone should have the freedom to pursue their, their own religion and freedom. God is reality. And therefore, if we want to have a strong country with a strong foundation, with a healthy foundation, we have to go back to the roots. We have to go back to the basics. And that is that this country is a country that's rooted and founded in the reality of God. We have to bring back a moment of silence. We must bring back a moment of silence into the schools. And Jews have to be in the forefront of this effort. We have to share with our neighbors the secret of our success. The secret of education is giving our children a foundation in life. Not to have 20 million recovering alcoholics, people who went through our educational system and did not learn the basic tools of how to live. And only after ruining their lives and destroying, self-destructing, and after bringing much pain and anguish to themselves and to their loved ones, do they have to discover in, a, in, a, in an AA meeting about a higher power about God? This is something, it's not fear for our children. We have 60 million children who received no education. Learning math and science is not education. The Nazis were brilliant. They knew how to make a gas that can kill people very efficiently. That's not called education. Education is a moral education, giving our children and ourselves a foundation for life. And that is knowing that, as Maimonides says, the brilliant philosopher and doctor, that the pillar of all pillars and the foundation of all foundations is the knowledge of God. That is the pillar of math and science and physics and astronomy. That is the pillar of all wisdom. And we have no right to rob our children of this fundamental truth. This is the foundation. Without a foundation, you have nothing. That's the glue that keeps a country together, that keeps families together. It keeps a society together. That's a, a glue that builds trust. That's why 50, 60 years ago, people, a handshake was all you needed. <laughs> there was trust. There was an honor system. There was integrity. There was a sense of morality. There was hardly any crime. People slept with their doors open during the Depression. And we, we, we this is the foundation of education. So, we have to go back to basics. We have to go back to the roots. God is reality, period. God, there's no compartmentalization. There's no separation, artificial separation between church and state. God is not church and God is not state. Yes, there should be a separation between a state-run church. But the idea of God, God forbid that God should be expelled from the public square and should be deprived, our children should be deprived of this most basic, fundamental reality, which is the only basis for a healthy life, a healthy society, a trusting society, and a wholesome life and a wholesome society. So Hashem, this is reality. This is the mission of the Jew, to share this faith and to educate the world, to be a light unto the nation, and to teach six billion people since we stood at Sinai. So we were charged with the mission to be a nation of priests, of teachers, prophets, to share and to teach the, teach the world. There are seven Noahide laws, which is the universal Ten Commandments, which is applicable to every human being that's alive. One doesn't have to be Jewish to be connected with God. Every human being has that connection. It's created in the image of God. And so when a Jew realizes this tremendous inheritance that we inherited, a tremendous... That's reason enough to rejoice. So Rabbi Levi Yitzhak started dancing when he realized what a gift he was given, what an inheritance. Something that he didn't earn. He didn't have to lift a pinky. He was born. He was born with his legacy and he was born with his inheritance. And he was born with, his, with, his, with these riches. He started dancing with joy. So this fills the heart, fills our heart with joy. When we, when we give thanks to Hashem, thank you for this inheritance, for this legacy, for this wonderful riches that we inherited. Due to no fault of our own. <laughs> Not because of anything we've done. <laughs> just the fact that we're born. To, just like the one-year-old baby inherits 
inherits his parents. His parents is a trillionaire, he inherits it. He didn't do anything. He was just born here. It's like the famous story. There was a mountain in, in, in Scotland. It was a mountain. It was, it was very hard to reach. And a few brave men decided to climb the mountain. And after harrowing the journey, they finally successfully climbed the mountain. And guess what they find there? A five-year-old kid. They said, what are you doing in the mountain? <laughs> it took us... You know how difficult it was for us to climb the mountain and you're a five-year-old? How do you get here? So the kid smiles at them and says, I was born here. <laughs> <laughs> so due to no fault of his own, he was born here. So due to no fault of our own, we're the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, the ones who God spoke to, and the ones who God chose to marry and addressed at Sinai. This is a legacy. This is the riches. This is an inheritance that we just inherit. When you realize what you have, and you appreciate what you have, and you're proud of what you have, that gives you a tremendous sense of joy. In other words, just as a person rejoices and is glad when an immense fortune falls into his possession by inheritance through no toil of his own, similarly and infinitely more so ought we to rejoice over the inheritance which our forefathers bequeathed to us. It's not money. We didn't inherit money. The bank accounts, we didn't inherit any great bank accounts from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even though the Torah says they were billionaires. They were all extremely successful billionaires, world famous. They were on the Forbes 400. <laughs> but that's not what we inherited. We inherited something far, far, far richer than that. Continue. This inheritance is the true unity of God, that even here below on earth there is nothing else besides Him alone, and this is His abode amongst the lowly beings of this physical world when they are pervaded by the awareness of God's unity and nullify themselves before it. Our own unaided efforts would never win for us the ability to experience God's unity. It is our inheritance from our forefathers. You could meditate for a thousand years. You could be Buddha himself and Mother Teresa herself and meditate for a thousand years. You would never come to this realization. This is completely counterintuitive. It was a revelation. That's why Sinai is called a revelation. That the physical, the ultimate purpose of creation, the heaven came down to earth. God's essence is revealed in this physical, material world. Even the angels resisted Sinai. They couldn't comprehend it. Totally beyond their comprehension. Sublime, spiritual, angelic beings, higher levels of consciousness. They just couldn't grasp the idea, the notion, that God's essence is found in the deed, in the action, in this physical world, in the material world, in the here and now, flesh and blood. They just couldn't comprehend that whole concept. Counterintuitive took them by surprise. Like any truth. How do you know something is true? When it's a revelation. When it takes you by surprise. If it's predictable, you know it's, you know, it's a very limited truth. When something is com truly unpredictable and takes you by com completely by surprise, that's usually the sign of something that's genuine, that's true. If something happens in your life it's completely unpredictable, you know it's coming directly from God. <laughs> Um, so, this was a revelation. How do we know this? How is it that every five-year-old Jewish child knows this truth? Something that eluded Aristotle, that eluded Plato, and eluded all the mystics, and eluded all the, all the religious greats. How does the simplest five-year-old child know this truth? Because he has a Torah. We inherit it. We inherited the Torah. We inherited the truth. We stood at Sinai. Not because of anything that we've done. No, due to no fault of our own. But we just inherited it. We inherited it. That's our riches. That's the greatest riches. That's, that's, that surpasses and exceeds anything you can imagine. What's $50 billion in comparison to the riches of the truth and the awareness and the knowledge that there's no other reality but God? God is with me right here and now the very essence and there's, no, there's nothing else and therefore there's no distance there's no distance between me and God 
God is here within me, around me. It's right there. Immediate, actual, real, palpable. That's, that's the greatest riches. And when you realize it and you truly understand it, you can't help but cry with joy. Imagine if suddenly you discovered that you inherited $50 billion. <laughs> You'd probably catch a heart attack. <laughs> they tell the story there was a uh, person who had a heart condition. He won like $100 million. They were afraid to break the news to him because he would catch a heart attack. So this doctor volunteered, this personal physician, he says, I'll break the news to him. So he's speaking to him. He says, let me ask you, Jack. What would you do if you just happened to win the jackpot, $100 million? He says, Doc, you've been so good to me. If I win the jackpot, half of it goes to you. The doctor <laughs> caught a heart attack and promptly died. <laughs> so imagine the joy if suddenly you discover that you're a billionaire. Before you had nothing, you were struggling to pay your electric bill, pay your rent, and all of a sudden, the one for a second, you discover that you're, you're the richest person on earth. Imagine the joy. Well, multiply that infinite times. The joy when you realize that you inherited the biggest riches. It's worth not billions, not trillions, not zillions. It's, it's, it's priceless. It's priceless. The truth that there's no other reality but God that everything is one, we're absolutely unified within the absolute unity of God, and all there is is God. And where is the absolute unity of God revealed in this world when we open our hearts and minds to God? And that's the whole purpose of creation, and only we have the ability to touch the essence of God and to reveal and manifest His essence in this world, in this setting, in this physical world that we live in. Soul, body and soul, in the physical manifestation. And we have with us the essence of God. Your heart will just you'll jump with joy. Your heart will just jump in ecstasy. You're, you're the richest person in the world. Bill Gates has nothing on you. Imagine such wealth, such riches. See, every morning we wake up, and we wake up anew, afresh. We realize again. We think about it again. And it hits home again. And we can't help but thank Hashem. How fortunate that we're proud we're proud of our Jewishness. We're proud of our inheritance, of our legacy, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. We're proud of the Torah that we have. Every letter, every word. Imagine such riches. And it just landed in our lap. We just, we just... And this knowledge, even the five-year-old child has this knowledge. 